let me say, if the kids are, are getting back, just by way of anecdote in many ways, I, I'm not sure about you all, but I love the time change in the fall. You like that last night? Amen. Who said amen? There you go, Mike. Good. Amen. And uh, I, I love the extra hour of sleep. And uh, I trust that you all this morning will come refreshed from an hour of sleep. There's no excuses for falling asleep during my sermon this morning. You got that extra hour. And <clears throat> I tell you, it came at a great time of the year for me and, and our family. You know, this past week, we've been late to several events. Uh, you know, our small groups, our, our home Bible studies are, are just launching. And uh, we started many of them this past week. On Thursday night, we had a wonderful time at the Larson's house. And on Friday, we had one at the Winnebago flock. And, and Elroy has charted the course, said the flock starts at 6.30 with fellowship. And then at 7 o'clock sharp, we begin our study time. And when did we show up? Like 7.07 or 7.10? Yeah, getting this thing off to a roaring start. Yeah, we... It didn't do very well. And yesterday we attended a, a wedding. Uh, Christy's sister getting married. And wedding starts 2 o'clock. And for weddings, you like to be there early, right? And we showed up a little bit. It started 2 o'clock. We showed up about five minutes after 2. I had to slip in the side door. And Doug Sosnowski gave us a good piece of advice. He said, Steve, tonight when you set your clocks back, only set it back 40 minutes. And then maybe you'll be... On time, but I just I, I just say that we're trying to do better. Something that I'm not at all perfect. If you saw our kids during a worship time this morning, you know that our family is not perfect. I just ask for your grace and patience with me. I'll be patient with you as well. And because uh, God in our text today, we're going to see a patient, patient, patient God. And I'm thankful for that. Are you? I'm very thankful. Let's pray before we we look into our text this morning. Lord, of anything that has impacted me in the text this week has been your gracious, kind, compassionate character. You sent to Israel prophet after prophet after prophet. Jeremiah, as Gordy said, spoke for 50 years calling people to repentance. And for 50 years, they shunned His message. And for 50 years, Lord, You were patient. Yet there was a time when that patience ran out. And Lord, I pray that we would seize the day. Seize the day of kindness and patience. That's the day is today. Lord, I pray we would never presume upon Your kindness thinking that we deserve Your kindness or come to expect it as if we deserve it. And may we see it all comes from Your grace. I pray You'd help me now teach us all the passage here in Matthew chapter 21. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, maybe you remember the story of King David. When he remained at home instead of going out to war, in his leisure he took a walk on the roof of the palace and spied a woman who was bathing. He inquired of this woman and found that her name was Bathsheba. She was the wife of Uriah the Hittite who was out fighting for David out on the battle lines. And in his sin, David took her, lay with her, and she became pregnant. And rather than confessing his sin, David sought to cover it up by calling Uriah back from the front lines. But he refused to go home and sleep with his wife. 
So in, in Uriah's integrity, David took him off and sent him back to the battlefield only to have him be killed in a sorry strategical maneuver. And at that point, David took Bathsheba as his wife. In the process, breaking half of the Ten Commandments, coveting his neighbor's wife, commandment number 10, committing adultery, commandment number 7, committing murder, commandment number 6, stealing a wife, commandment number 8, and through it all, lying, commandment number 9. It's a terrible thing that David did. And perhaps the worst thing of it all is that he didn't confess his actions as sinful. An entire year went by and David was silent of his sin until a man named Nathan came along to confront him. You remember how Nathan confronted him? He told him a story, a masterful story. He said there are two men in the city. One was rich and one was poor. The poor had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. And it would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came, Nathan says, to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him he needs to feed. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who'd come to him. And you remember David's response? He was furious. He said, how can that be? He said, as the Lord lives, surely that man deserves to die for taking a lamb. And then David came and said, he must make restitution for this lamb fourfold because he's done this thing and had no compassion. At that moment, Nathan had David right where he wanted him. And Nathan said to David, what? You are the man. And what makes that story great is that David repented. He repented. He saw the situation exactly. On the one hand, he was a third-party observer looking on someone else. Nathan said, no, no, you're not third-party, you're first-party. And he saw it and he repented from that. And several psalms have come down our way because of that. Now, why did I tell you that story? I tell you that story because Jesus told a story of the exact same kind to the nation of Israel in Matthew 21. It's our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 46, in which Jesus tells a parable which enrages, really, these religious leaders. Jesus asked for a response from them, and they responded just like David did bringing forth the right judgment. And then like Nathan had done so masterfully, Jesus brought it back upon these religious leaders. Didn't say in these words, you are the man. But verse 45 said that they fully understood that he was speaking about them. This parable tells us the story of Israel. It tells us of a kind, caring, compassionate, and patient God who's rejected by sinful, rebellious, unthankful people. And sadly, when the story is finished, when these religious leaders come to understand clearly what Jesus is communicating, they didn't repent as David had done. Rather, verse 46, they sought to seize him. My message this morning is entitled, A Parable for Israel. It's the parable that Israel needed to hear. And it's the parable, by the way, that we need to hear as well. In verse 33, our text begins... With Jesus saying, listen to another parable. Last week we heard one parable. It's about the the parable of the two sons. 
Next week, we'll hear the parable of the wedding feast. But this week, we hear the parable of the landowner. And by this parable, Jesus really sums up for us the entire Old Testament. 39 books in the Old Testament, all summed up in one little parable. A few eight verses or so. Describing God's patient dealings with Israel and describing Israel's continual rejection of God and the centrality of the cross of Christ. My outline this morning is very simple. It's the parable, verses 33 through 41, and the interpretation, verses 42 to 46. The parable and the interpretation. I want to just describe this parable, kind of try to bring it to life. What Jesus said in verse 33, he said there was a parable of a landowner who planted a vineyard. I told you several weeks ago that vineyards were were all over Israel. The climate in Israel is perfect for growing grapes. And the Jews who heard of this story would understand clearly what it means to grow vines. It's not too difficult for us. We just need to think about cornfields. It's a similar thing. You know, of all the care that a farmer takes for a cornfield. And this vineyard, this landowner planted a vineyard. This particular piece of land hadn't been cultivated yet. It may have required some labor, right? Removing some rocks or cutting down some weeds or cultivating the field for the first time. But the vineyard, the landowner did more than just, you know, plant the crop. He also protected it by putting a wall around it. It wouldn't have been a cheap enterprise to do. It would have cost much effort to protect it. But it would have protected the vines from animals who wanted to have a little nice dessert every now and then. It was a a sign of care and compassion. He put a a fence around the field. It says here that he dug a wine press. That means that he's expecting fruit to come. Rather than taking the grapes and taking them off to some other field or some other wine press, he's going to take them right in this field alone. He's going to press the grapes right then and there. Streamlining the process, trying to make a better business. And he also built a tower, verse 33 says. Would have allowed watchmen to stand up there and watch over thieves maybe who want to come in and destroy the field. And in all of this, planting, building, digging a wine press, building a tower, it's the great care of the landowner to ensure that his vineyard would produce fruit. Soil was cultivated. The field protected by a wall, the wine press ready for fruit. It was intended to be a successful and profitable operation. Now, for some reason, when it was all built and ready to put forth fruit, the landowner rented it to vine growers and went on a journey. We don't know where he went or why he went, but in his absence, the landowner transferred responsibility for the welfare of his vineyard to these vine growers. It says here that he rented it from them. That they rented it from him. Now, such an arrangement is not so unusual. It takes place today. It's very common for one person to own the land and a farmer to farm it. You can pay us so many dollars per acre. That's one way to do it. You can share of the proceeds. That's another way to do it. You can do a percentage of each. It's a very common thing. It's a, it's a contractual agreement that you get. And this owner put a contract on this, gave the responsibility to the vine growers, and went off on a journey. And then in verse 34, we meet with some tragic consequences. The harvest time approached, and he sent his slaves to the vineyard to receive his produce. And surely that was in accordance with the rental agreement. Right? When the crop comes... I'll send my people and they'll come and and take of 
you know, why my proper share? And the vine growers did this terrible thing. They took his slaves. They beat one. They killed another. And they stoned a third. Rather than being received kindly, they were harshly treated. One of them beaten. Maybe taken wooden sticks or, or metal rods. Taken and beaten and strike the other slave so that bloody and bruised could go back and tell the landowner what took place. As the others were killed. We don't know how some were killed, but we know some were stoned. The common method of stoning people back then was to take somebody off a cliff, throw them down, stun them a little bit, and then you could throw boulders and rocks upon them. It was a terrible and painful, awful way to die. In verse 36... We read he didn't get his payment back. So, again, he sent some more slaves to collect his rent. Listen, again, he sent another group to slave larger than the first. He learned some things. He learned that these vine growers were wicked men. And, you know, maybe he had sent only three this first time. And maybe he sent four at least. Maybe ten or twenty slaves he sent to get his proceeds. And it didn't matter. They did the same to them. Some were beaten. And others were killed. Those who were beaten were able to return and tell the landowner what took place as he attempted to receive his payment from the field. At this point, really, the landowner does an amazing thing. He sends his own son to confront these dangerous men. And the reasoning comes in verse 37. He says, But afterwards he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. In some ways, this kind of borders on being naive. Borders on being trusting. If they killed several sets of slaves, why would they not kill the son also? But maybe the landowner was giving the benefit of the doubt to these people, thinking that you know maybe they thought the other slaves were trying to steal their money and weren't really coming from the owner, but the son would be clearly identified as coming from the owner himself. There'd be no doubt. He was sent by the landowner, and yet the results are tragic. Again, in verse 38 and 39. When the vine growers saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. This is the heir. He started thinking. And then they said, Come and let us kill him and seize his inheritance. The field will be ours. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Such was the wickedness of these men that they killed the son as well. Then Jesus asks the question, gets to the point of the parable in verse 30, verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? It's not a mystery. He'll bring justice. And that's where the leaders responded. Verse 41, they said, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end. And will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. They rightly interpreted what sort of people these vine growers were. He called them wretched people. Dishonest men who had forsaken the contract had spilt blood in their defiance. These religious leaders understood the parable like David understood Nathan's parable, but little did they know that they had pronounced their own condemnation. Which really comes in my second point this morning, the interpretation. The interpretation, verses 42 through 46. These religious leaders should have known that Jesus was speaking about them in His parable. 
Because this parable is remarkably similar to the one that the prophet Isaiah had told some 700 years before. In fact, verse 33 is a direct quotation from Isaiah chapter 5. And so I invite you to turn back in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 5. Here's a passage that would have been very familiar to these religious leaders. These experts in the law certainly would have read this. And I say Isaiah was much more familiar to them than Isaiah is to us. We might focus so much of our attention upon the New Testament today. Because it speaks of the revelation of Christ. But they spent a lot of their time in the Old Testament. And particularly their Isaiah was like the epistles of Paul. The rich, doctrinal, mysterious, wonderful things. They spent a lot of time here. And no doubt, I'm sure that there are some of them even preached in their synagogues messages from Isaiah chapter 5. And Isaiah wrote here in verse 1, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. He's talking about God. God's my beloved, the one I love. He says, My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. And he dug it around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what Jesus told in his parable. And then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. It's almost exactly the parable Jesus told. And Isaiah goes on then to interpret the parable. He says, Oh now, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judea, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I had not done for it? In other words, I planted it, I removed the stones, made sure the soil was fertile, I built a a wall around it, a tower in it. What more could I have done? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. And I will lay it waste, and it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. And I also charge the clouds to rain and no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. And thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress." It's exactly the same parable. Interpret it exactly. Here was God, the owner of a vineyard, planting a vineyard, which was Israel, expecting it to produce fruit, and it didn't. And when it didn't, God said, I'm going to condemn it. I'm going to break down that wall, break down that hedge. Verse 5. I'm going to let the field be uncultivated. Verse 6. The rain is going to be withheld to prevent anything from growing. And that took place in Israel's time in a few years. Israel, the northern nation, had already been destroyed by Assyria, but Judah, to whom Isaiah wrote, was soon exiled into Babylon. The people taken out of it, and even the land there just crumbled and withered. Why? Because Israel bore no fruit. And we saw a few weeks ago that the fig that puts forth leaves, advertising that it has fruit but has no fruit, will soon be destroyed and wither up and die. We'll turn back to Matthew chapter 21. Jesus takes this parable... And adds just a little bit of a twist to it. 
in Isaiah's parable, the landowner represented God and the vineyard represents Israel just as it does here in Jesus' parable. But Jesus adds a few more components, makes his parable a little bit more complex so he can describe the Savior's role. The vine growers in Jesus' parable represent the religious leaders of Israel who had spiritual responsibility to shepherd the flock of God. The slaves represent the prophets that God sent again and again and again to Israel. And the son represents Jesus himself, the son of God. As God had planted and cultivated this nation of Israel, so he did. And God gave the responsibility of spiritual leaders to the religious leaders of Israel as the landowners. They received responsibility. God sent his prophets to Israel as his landowner had sent his slaves. God sent Jesus to Israel as this landowner had sent his son to the vine growers. And remember, there are two themes coming through this parable. There's a theme of the kindness of God. I mean, that comes again and again and again, the kindness of God. You get a strong sense that this vineyard owner cared for his vineyard. He goes to great extents to see the vineyard would grow and prosper. And when you take this into history, by looking at the kindness of God to Israel, it's really stunning how kind God was to Israel. In Genesis 12, the nation began with a choice God made. He plucked of all the peoples on the earth. He chose Abraham. Not because Abraham was any meritus or anything. He chose him and said, Abraham, you're going to be a father of nations. I'm going to multiply you and your numbers are going to be like the stars in the sky. or like the sands upon the seashore. That's God's unbelievable kindness and blessing to this man, Abraham. And through amazing providences in the early history of this nation, God protected his family from a famine. You can read about that in Jeremiah, in Genesis 37 to 50. Incredible things that God did, orchestrating events through the life of Joseph just to protect his promised people. Though they became slaves in Egypt, God blessed them. And they multiplied greatly to be this nation of over a million people. Back then, it's a lot. A lot of people. And then he delivered them from slavery by such unbelievable displays of his sovereignty that Jewish people, to this day, 4,000 years later, celebrate the wonderful things that God did. God's gracious kindness to them. He brought them into the promised land and blessed them abundantly. I go on and on. In Jeremiah, I just Jeremiah 21 verses 43 to 45 speak about how God poured out all his blessings upon Israel, giving them all the land which he'd sworn to their fathers, giving them rest on every side. And he said, "Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass." It all came to pass. Exactly as God promised, his his kindness extended to them greatly. And how did Israel respond? Well, that's the other theme here. The kindness of God on the one hand, and then you get the rebellion of Israel on the other. They rebelled. And then they rebelled. And then they rebelled. And then they rebelled against God. And they rebelled against God. And they worshipped other gods. And they pursued their own wicked ways. And they rebelled against God. If you read the book of Judges, you see how they forsook the Lord again and again and again and again. <clears throat> they get so desperate, they'd cry out to the Lord for help, and he'd, deliver, he'd, he'd provide them with a judge to deliver them. And you remember what they'd say? 
Thank you very much, God, for a while. And then they go back into their wicked ways again and again and again. During the time of the kings, it was the same thing. <clears throat> there were times of good kings, but they were few and far between. The times of the wicked kings were more leading Israel into wicked sin. Israel, listen, they were a rebellious nation. When the prophets came, do you know how the people responded to them? Gordy, I already mentioned today that Jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks, thrown in an empty cistern, a deep well. We're told in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, that Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord. And we don't know how many that is, but we know that Obadiah hid a hundred of them from Jezebel. So you can imagine that, you know, maybe hundreds were killed, destroyed by Jezebel, the queen. In 2 Chronicles 24, the story is told of Zechariah who confronts the nation with their wickedness and they stoned him to death. And it was well known among the people that Jews were those who persecuted their own prophets. Jesus refers to this in Matthew 23, verse 30. Stephen refers to this in Acts 7, verse 52. Stephen said, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? In other words, the norm was persecution. The rarity was the prophet that wasn't persecuted. Israel hated the prophets, but God showed His incredible patience to this rebellious nation by sending more prophets and more prophets, and more prophets. Year after year after year, decades and generations, God was faithful, and God was kind, and God was patient. It's exactly as Jesus describes here in this parable. You see the kindness of God to care for this vineyard. You see the rebellion of the people, but God continued in His kindness on top of that. And I simply say, it's the same for us today. God has been extremely patient and extremely kind with all of us. And today is a day of God's tremendous patience and kindness. And you know what? If any of us don't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who's to blame? You're to blame. I mean, the gospel in our nation is widely proclaimed. Churches abound in America. anyone interested in learning the truth about God could go to to any church. And certainly, you know, the full truth of the gospel is distorted there. But at least they give you direction, at least to begin to follow something. The Lord's promise, you seek me with your whole heart, you'll find me. We uh, have kind of adopted, if you will, a a foreign exchange student from Bulgaria. And uh, we have him in our home periodically. And uh, one of the things he's told me, he's amazed at the number of churches here in Rockford. For him to drive up and down the streets and to see, oh, there's a church, there's a church, there's a church. He's amazed. And that just speaks of the blessing of God to have religion in our land. And if people don't come to church, right, there's other options. I'm guessing across our land, 95% of the people across our land could probably turn on the radio and tune into Christian radio and hear good preachers. Hear the gospel clearly. Say people don't listen to radios. I know lots of people across our land watch TV a lot. And even I know D. James Kennedy plays on Fox 39 every Sunday morning. Free TV. You just turn it on and you can watch it. You can see it. God has abounded in kindness 
to our nation. There's no other nation in the history of the world that's had a Christian heritage like we've had. Many of the pilgrims that came over came for religious reasons, and we believe exactly what they believe in the providence of God. It's no accident that they named those first cities Providence. It's no accident that Thanksgiving came to give thanks to our immortal God. You just read William Bradford's accounts. It is worship. Many of the activities that took place, strong Christians there at Plymouth Plantation. There's no other nation in history that's been blessed like we have from a material perspective. And how have we responded as a nation? We've rebelled. And we've rebelled. And we've rebelled. And we've rebelled. And we've rebelled. I mean, I think about our rebellion, how it's manifests itself. It's manifests itself in the sheer numbers of children born out of wedlock today. Speaking to some of the nurses in the OB departments, I mean, they're, they're close to 50% of babies being born today in hospitals are out of wedlock. It's rare that it's a solid family. Maybe it's still the majority. Maybe my percentages are wrong. Maybe, you know, 60%, 67% have a father and a mother married. But it's becoming more and more. Sexual promiscuity is regular. It's, it's okay. I remember when I was a child, seeing a 60 Minutes one time, talking about, uh, you know, living together. 60 Minutes did this like whole show about living together. Like it's a big scandal. Today, it's commonplace. We've rebelled by legalizing abortion. I need to tell you about the wickedness of that. We rebelled by accepting homosexuality. That's an acceptable lifestyle. It's just accepted today. Maybe we haven't gone through all of the ramifications of saying same-sex marriage is okay, but that's common. We've rebelled in the wickedness and sensuality that's displayed on our television sets. What's displayed today would never have been allowed back 20 years ago. 30 years ago. And it's just a slippery slope. It keeps going and getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And that's free TV, public TV. Cable TV, it's gone wild, gone amok. And if all the professing Christians in this world would say that's enough, it would shut down the, the uh, entertainment industry, but we haven't. Professing Christians have let it, let it go. We've rebelled in removing God from our children's education. They can take God out entirely of the public schools. Allowing exploitation of the poor with all of our state lotteries. It, it's, it's, an un, it's an uncontested fact that the ones who suffer most of the lotteries are the poor. And yet we allow that to go on. You go on and on and on. We are a nation adrift just like Israel. And I believe the elections that will take place this week are going to be a clear indication of whether God continues to demonstrate His incredible, undeserved patience and kindness to us as a rebellious nation. Or it's going to be God allowing us to reap our own consequences of our sin. And I'm praying fervently that we would get undeserved blessing. Yet if we continue in our rebellion, there's a day, there will be a day when God's patience runs out and we have nobody to blame but ourselves. Because God has been incredibly patient and kind to us. Now with Israel, those days arrived when they rejected the Son. As it says here in verse 42, Jesus brings the focus down here to the rejection of the Son, the day when God's patience ran out on Israel. The Son was the one to be received. The Son was the, the chief of the prophets ever sent. 
And yet they rejected him. And Jesus said, rebuking them, did you never read in the scriptures? Said three other times in Matthew, always a rebuke. You guys say you know the scriptures. Didn't you read them? Here's what the scriptures say. He quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23. The stone which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it's marvelous in our eyes. Now there's some discussion exactly what this cornerstone is. Most believe that it's the, the foundation stone on the church from which... on the that church, on the building from which all the angles are measured from. It needs to be a perfectly cut, foundational, strong, big stone. That's probably what it is. Some say the cornerstone is the, the, the chief, highest stone that sits on the arch and perfectly balances all of the whole arch. We don't know exactly what it is, but we do know it's the most important stone in the whole building. And here's the ironic thing. If anybody knows about stones, who is it? It's the builders who know about stones. Builders are always looking at their materials. They say, okay, well, let's see, this board, where can it go? Does it go over here or this sheet of plywood? Or, you know, this two-by-four. You look down a two-by-four, a carpenter can, you say, oh, that's a bad one, throw it out. Or that's, that's a good one, and put it in the house. If anybody knows, if anybody knows about uh, a good hunk of metal, it's Doug Sosnowski, right? If anybody knows about a good place to dig a well, it's Dirk Reet, right? You just know your things that you deal with. And a build, to builders... A perfect stone to be used as a cornerstone isn't quickly overlooked or rejected. Oh, it may be, you know, missed in all these other stones, but when a builder comes across a cornerstone, he looks at that and say, and that's a stone, no cracks, crevices, that can work for the foundation. They're not going to take that one and throw it out and pitch it. And likewise, if anybody should know the Messiah, it should be those who are searching for the Messiah. And here the Messiah was under the nose of these Pharisees and they totally missed him. They witnessed all his miracles. They saw his life and conduct. They scrutinized his teaching and they still rejected him. And that's the point of verses 45 and 46. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard this parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. Far from repenting as David did, they continued in their rebellion. It's a typical response to these Jewish people who hated Jesus with all of their passion. And that's what chapters 21 through 23 are about here in Matthew. Jesus and the religious leaders going at it like this. Jesus showing himself to be the Messiah and the Jewish leaders rejecting him. And in 23, Jesus will pronounce these woes and judgments upon the Pharisees. Jesus knew he was coming to Jerusalem to die, and he was doing his part to ensure that it would come about. He was bringing truth to the surface. Thus would be rejected. Unless we think that's a plan that spun out of control. Look at what verse 42 says. This came about from the Lord. God did this whole thing. It was no accident that Jesus died upon the cross. I mean, you think about when Jesus told this parable, he hadn't yet been crucified. He's like prophetically telling of things in the future. He's saying what would happen. And on several occasions, we've seen them again and again. Jesus is telling his disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem to die. We're going up to Jerusalem to die. And then I'm going to be raised again. We're going up to Jerusalem to die. And then I'm going to be raised again. And in fact, on one occasion, he even said that he would be crucified. 
Matthew 20, verse 19. And when Jesus was crucified upon the cross, it was God who put him there. Don't ever think in your mind that the cross was an unfortunate turn of events. It wasn't. It was God's doing. Now, certainly the Jews are responsible. They admitted it. They said, His blood be upon us and our children, Matthew 27, verse 25. But it was God's hand that was guiding it all to bring it to pass. That's what this says. It, was, it came about from the Lord. Why did the builders reject the chief cornerstone? Because from the Lord. He hardened their hearts. That's how it's got to be. It's got, you got to read it. And then you read it, the last phrase, here it is. It's marvelous in our eyes. It's marvelous in our eyes. In, in other words, it gives us joy. And the cross is what gives us hope in this life. Where the truth known, as I've tried to pound, we're not different than ancient Israel. We haven't been perfect to merit God's kindness. And yet, you know what? God has been kind to us despite us. And you know, He's been far beyond just kind. Think about what God has done. The good news of the gospel is that God has extended His saving arm to those who simply look to the cross and believe in the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. By a belief, by a look, through faith, God in His grace saves us. And you know what? If this chief cornerstone had never been rejected, we would still be like the Israelites. If the chief cornerstone was never rejected, we'd be traveling to Jerusalem today and offering up bulls and goats, trying to appease God for our sins, which Hebrews says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But does cover sins. It never takes it away. It took the Son of God, the rejected cornerstone, to take sins away. And if the chief cornerstone had never been rejected, we would still be dead in our sins without hope in this present life. You see why the cross of Christ is marvelous in our eyes? It's because the cross gives us hope and gives us life. In this church, we've often sung the song, hymn number 317, O Mighty Cross. What throne of grace, He knew no sin, yet took my place. His sacrifice on Calvary has made the mighty cross a tree of life to me. And we sing about the cross, the mighty cross, the wonderful cross, the life-giving cross, because the rejection of the chief cornerstone is marvelous in our eyes. And if you don't know anything today about the wonderful marvels of the cross of Christ, you're no different than the Jews who rejected Jesus 2,000 years ago. You're no different than these Pharisees if you don't see the cross as wonderful and marvelous. Because they didn't. They wanted to kill Jesus. And the warning comes loud and clear in verses 43 and 44. <clears throat> Jesus says, it's a warning to those who forsake the chief cornerstone, those who don't think it's marvelous, those who don't believe it came about from the Lord. Therefore I say to you, verse 43, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing fruit of it. Now these verses, Jesus is speaking directly to the Jewish leaders who had rejected Jesus. 
As they rejected Jesus, he says, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you and given to another that would produce fruit. Now, when you read the New Testament, you see that this new nation isn't a political, a political entity like Mexico or Germany or Yugoslavia or America. This new nation that God talks about forming comprised of those who believe and trust in Christ. It's those who by faith have embraced the stone that the Jews stumbled upon that become part of this new nation. And you see that clearly in 1 Peter. Peter wrote to the scattered church throughout Asia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, Pontus, Galatia. All these people. Peter wrote this letter scattered all. People of all nations. And here's what he said. He said they were in union with one another because they believed in the stone that was rejected. And he writes to those scattered people. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for God's own possession. What what encompassed them in this nation, it wasn't a political ethnic entity. It was an entity unified by faith in Christ. And so here in verse 43, when the Jews forfeited the right to the promises, the kingdom was taken away from them and given to another people, those who would receive the Son by faith. And here's the great thing of the story for us, is that we get life because they rejected life. I mean, the reason the promises of Christ have come to us is because the Jews rejected it. And they still reject it today. Paul says a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Partial hardening to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. You know what the fullness of the Gentiles is? It's the elect being saved. It's the, all the Gentiles coming in, coming to faith. And a partial hardening has happened to Israel. And that's what happened in the cross. God hardened Israel in the cross so that they would reject the stone, so that life would come to all of us. And this ought to be marvelous in your eyes. I want you to imagine yourself at a, a ball game. Football, basketball. Hockey's not a ball game, is it? Okay. Football or basketball, okay? You're at this ball game, and the opposing team is trying to kick a 40-yard field goal. And the guy goes up and he kicks it and it goes wide left. What do you do? Yeah, he missed it. Woohoo! It was bad for them, it was good for us. Yahoo! Right? Imagine yourself at a basketball game. Guy's bouncing, your opponent's bouncing his free throw, just bouncing it back and forth. He eyes it up like this. And he shoots it and it goes bedoying off the rim. What do you do? Yes! Yes, it's bad for you, but it's good for me. And that's the same what the cross is about. When Jesus is crucified on the cross, you say, yes, it's bad for you, Israel, but it's glorious for us. Israel botched it up. It's good news for us. Israel rejected their Messiah. And so the blessings of God extend far beyond Israel today. They come to us who believe, and we ought to respond like those did at city in Antioch. When Paul preached to the synagogue, the whole town came the next, the next day, the next Sabbath. And they rejected the things that Paul was saying. And so he turned to the Gentiles and he spoke to them about how light has come to you now. And you know what they did? They rejoiced. They were rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord because salvation has come to them. Rejected by the Jews first. And then it came to the Gentiles. And there's a warning here in verse 44. There's a warning. The one who stumbles on the crucified Savior will be destroyed. 
The one who fails to embrace the grace of God as displayed in the cross will be punished. That's what Jesus says here, verse 44. And he who falls on this stone, in other words, if you stumble on Jesus, you will be broken to pieces. When that stone, Jesus, comes and finds you unbelieving, you will be pulverized into tiny pieces. That's what it says. But on whomever it falls, it's the stone falling on you, unbelieving, it will scatter him like dust. You ever taken a kernel of wheat and smashed it with another rock? You go like this, it's just flour. That's what happened to those who stumble at the cross of Christ. And it's right here at the cross of Christ that is the stumbling block to many. And those who stumble on the cross, don't embrace it, don't rejoice in the cross of Christ, are in great danger. Well, let me say, this is a story that Jesus told, a parable for Israel. But it's a parable for us as well. We need to rejoice in the rejection of Jesus because of everything that means. But we ought never, we ought never become prideful of our possession. Never become prideful. You know, so maybe take that illustration I told about rejoicing at the unfortunate missed field goal or missed free throw attempt and kind of kind of balance that a little bit. On one hand, we do rejoice. On the other hand, we ought never to be puffed up in pride and arrogance like Israel was. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 9, is a great story told as Israel was entering into the, the promised land. Deuteronomy 9, verses 4 through 6, God says this, Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out from before you, because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. He says, don't think it's because of your righteousness, Israel. God continues, but it's because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It's not because you're so righteous, Israel. It's because they're so wicked. And it's their wickedness. I'm going to blot them out and bring you in. And he goes on again, Deuteronomy 9, 5, verse 5. It's not for your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess their land. But it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out from before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here it is again, verse 6. Know then, it's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess because, he says, you're a stubborn people. And we ought to take heed to that warning this morning. We are sharers of the gospel not because we're righteous and the Jews are not. We're not. We are sharers of the gospel only because Israel was wicked and forsook the prophets and forsook the Son and didn't repent and extended His grace and compassion undeservingly to us. And we ought never to be prideful that we are recipients of God's mercy. It's all of grace that we have anything. We deserve none of it. That's the message of grace. It ought to humble us. It ought not to make us proud and arrogant. And Jesus told this parable of condemnation to Israel, which really, it's a parable of mercy to us. And I pray that we as a congregation will rejoice in God's kindness and grace and compassion to us in Christ. You say amen? Let's say amen and pray together.
Lord, I would pray as I labor week in, week out, that we would see the, the cross of Christ as ever more glorious, ever more magnificent in our eyes. To think of you orchestrating circumstances to allow Jesus to come into Jerusalem on a donkey heralded as the king and rejected just a week later. Coming about from the hand of the Lord. It's the Lord's doing. Lord, I pray you would make it marvelous in our eyes that we would look to you and look to the cross for our justification. And I pray, Lord, even as my final application came, may we at Rock Valley Bible Church not be filled with arrogant, boastful, proud, righteous people who show and extend no mercy to others. But may, O Lord, we know your mercy to us and extend that freely to others. I think of how judgment will be merciless to him who shows no mercy. And I know as a pastor, the church, I'm in the firing range many times, even people in the church, and would pray, Lord, God, that you would be merciful to us, that we would extend mercy. I pray you'd teach that mercy to me. God, not to rule this church with an iron fist, but to lead it as a gentle, submissive servant longs for his flock to be well. And so God would pray that these truths would would sink deep into our minds, sink deep into our hearts, and that we would look at the rejected stone and glorify and rejoice in all the wonderful things, Lord, that you have done for us. We pray in the wonderful, matchless name of Christ Jesus, our Lord.